Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Carland and welcome to What Happens Next. In this episode, we'll look at what healthcare delivery could be like in the future and how technological change, innovation and advancement has been accelerated by COVID-19. If maximal speed in telehealth is 100 k's an hour, we sort of went from 10 or 15 k's an hour right up to 90 very quickly. The pandemic has driven the shift, but it hasn't actually created the products or the platforms that we're using. It's just enabled their utilisation. Kathy Reid is the co-founder of Australia's Epic Group, including Epic Pharmacy and Epic Good Foundation, and the co-founder of Icon Group, and she's passionate about new health solutions. She's also a Monash alumni from the Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Kathy talks to us about the acceleration of change driven by the COVID pandemic. Chris Bain is a professor of practice in digital health in the Monash Faculty of Information Technology, the first to ever hold this role. He leads the university's efforts in digital health, working with faculties and institutes across the university, as well as with a range of health industry partners. With more than 30 years experience in the health industry, including 12 in clinical medicine, Chris sees incredible potential for innovation and change for the better in healthcare delivery. So hi, uh, my name's Chris Bain. I'm the Professor of Practice in Digital Health uh, at Monash University. It's the, the first job of its kind in the university. So I lead our efforts around digital health research and to some extent work with others around education around digital health. And my background's heavily actually been out in healthcare for about 27 years in Victoria and then in the university for the last three years. We're in the middle of a global pandemic, in case you hadn't noticed. And what we have seen is there's been a real acceleration in using tech to deliver healthcare. You've been working in this area for a long time, though. To most of us, it's quite new. What do you think is um, now causing the, the pickup? Is it just the requirement of COVID? Do you think people are more open-minded to these sort of things now? Yeah, Susan, I think, unfortunately, it's it's very um, practical, realistic reasons that people have started doing this more. And there's a bit of an illusion about what they're actually doing, which we might talk about a bit as well. But um, definitely the, the wariness of attending a practitioner face-to-face in the setting of a pandemic and a deliberate, you know, mechanism to avoid that where we can. And also the fact that um, the government has sort of opened the gates on funding this kind of care, which has been a big stumbling block for many years to its greater advancement. So the government has said we will actually fund healthcare practitioners to deliver care this way. And, and that has always been a bit of a sticking point. So it's a combination of factors. Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So you think it was sort of the necessity of the moment and then Correct. which then caused yes. the government to say, okay, we'll fund yes. it. Um, you know, those of us in, who've been working in the area, and I don't particularly specialise in telehealth, but it falls under a whole range of technologies I've been working with for a long time. But one of the biggest barriers noted in research in the area in Australia has been appropriate remuneration. And that's a, mm. an important consideration. So if you're going to ask busy practitioners, think of a GP, for instance, who's historically set their whole business up about working a particular way and getting funded by seeing patients face-to-face, it needs to be you know, similarly equitable for them to make the switch doing more consultations virtually, assuming they have the right technology. Um, so that's just an inevitable thing of embedding any technology. How does it fit into somebody's workflow and 
can their business survive the transition? Um, so, you know, it's not just a case of, oh, those doctors want to lose money. It's a bit more complicated than that. Mm. As I said before, you've been working in this area for quite some time. Is there anything possible now that might not have been possible before? Yeah, look, there's certainly technological things that are possible, um, particularly driven by the pandemic. I think the thing that's most interestingly possible now is people have seen the ability to deliver more care at scale, although there is a there is a concern underpinning that, which we might come back to. So one of the sort of mental barriers, if you like, as well as a bit of an access barrier. So as part of this whole pandemic response, there's been greater access access provided to some of the key reliable tools in this telehealth space much more broadly across the country as well as paying people to use it so we're hoping that what's really possible afterwards if we get to an after depending on what an after looks like is that we can say well okay we could actually do that a lot more than we thought we could before mm. now let's not slip all the way back i've sort of used the analogy of if we were if maximal speed in telehealth is 100 k's an hour we sort of went from 10 or 15 k's an hour right up to 90 very quickly and there's been some problems with that and things we need to watch for we're hoping we slip back to 40 50 60 in a way that makes sense and not back to 10 that would be a concern if we don't learn from this opportunity Obviously, there's a lot of benefits uh, we've seen yes. during the pandemic to things like yes. telehealth and lots of other um, healthcare innovations. Yes. Are there any potential problems or risks that, that yeah. you see that we need to be aware of? Yeah, and look, we really need to take a deep, again, we just, uh, if we can get some clear headspace, which a lot of the rest of the country seem to have, Victoria doesn't have at the minute, we can start to ask a couple of questions. So one is, what happened to healthcare through that period? What actually happened? What does the data say? Did people's care actually, was it sustained at a suitable level? And there's evidence already emerging that for some kinds of conditions that hasn't been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, equally, what kind, we can, of conditions, what kind of conditions are they? Yeah. Which are the ones that seem to not do as well? Look, I think there's going to be a whole range of them, but even in the last few days. So, for instance, um, and some of this is local data and some of it is international data. Last mm. few days there was an article in the paper about uh, people uh, relatively uh, dropping the use of post-exposure prophylaxis for people who have uh, man-to-man sex. Now, mm-hmm. even the people who describe that dip during the earlier stage of the pandemic say, well, is that because people were behaving less riskily because they couldn't see other people or was it because they didn't feel they could access a service? The other thing that came into the paper last week again was from the Australian Stroke Registry about access to stroke services. So people avoiding calling a doctor or calling an ambulance when they had stroke symptoms. So a dip in people actually uh, wanting to seek care. I know this also from speaking to people in different parts of the health system who anecdotally are describing, you know, less heart attacks or perceptions Mm -hmm. of less trauma. That makes sense. Less road trauma, less alcohol-induced violence. There are reasons for that. But there's this really concerning picture evolving. And if you add to that, that you know, there's been examples in Australia of true virtual care through telehealth. So something like RPA Virtual in Sydney has popped up, treating COVID patients remotely. But 
when you look at the dominance of the the uh, what's called the MBS items for telehealth since the pandemic, there's figures saying that about 90% of that is actually just phone calls. It's not right. even using the video. Mm-hmm. So if you ask any any healthcare professional, especially any doctor who's been around for a while, they know that you can't deliver the same quality of care across the board for all conditions over the phone as you can by seeing a patient. So a few things to worry about technologically, but more than anything, what's going to have been the impact on healthcare delivery as we get through the other side of this? And I wondered when I heard about those examples, because I've also heard about how um, oncologists are saying there's a worrying drop in the number yes. of people that are presenting for um, cancer diagnosis. Yes. And I wondered, is that technology or is that just the pandemic? People thinking, oh, well, yes. unless I've got COVID, I really shouldn't clog up the hospitals yes. or I don't want to go mm. to the hospital or doctor in case I catch COVID there. Is it, how do we separate the two? Well, again, only really by looking at it, I think, after the fact when we've got headspace to do so. Um, You know, every second researcher I'm aware of at Monash at the minute, it makes sense. And also because that's where funding is coming, is looking at COVID things, you know, all about COVID. We'll have a better sense of answers to those questions when we can ease off a bit and look at more normality. I think the answer is a combination of both. I've got no doubt that some people are avoiding care. I mean, we've had significant health issues in our own family, you know, during the pandemic and you see your own decision-making process and how the system operates. But I'm sure some of it is because, you know, the option of telehealth just doesn't cut the mustard. Mm, You know, it's mm. not in the way it currently works, which is mainly the video and voice channels. um, It's not the same as having all the information you would face-to-face. Right. And just, yeah, getting a proper physical examination, I imagine. Do you think there might be some forms of health that might actually do really well under a telehealth model? For example, mental health services that people might be, you know, if they're in remote locations or maybe they're feeling perhaps so depressed, they don't want to leave the house, but they can turn on the video on their phone and talk Mm. to someone. And that actually might be improved through this sort of technology. Yeah, so we certainly know even from before the pandemic that some kinds of, you know, health services and some kinds of benefits from telehealth were seemed quite promising. So obviously people who live in remote locations, even relatively remote locations on the end of city, edge of cities with less specialist access, let alone rural and remote, there's evidence around that they benefit in terms of better access, reduced travel costs. Conditions like telepsychiatry or telepsychology, sorry, services like telepsychiatry or telepsychology, teledermatology, even some evidence around telestroke services, all of different kinds, suggests that people do okay with those things and could do better and their access gets better. Um, As for the rest of the conditions, again, just going to have to wait and see. I mean, I I think if you look on the technology side of the equation, you know, some of our own work, we're looking at extending what you can do over the wire, if you like, beyond just speaking to someone and uh, speaking with someone and looking at them. Mm. Can we collect other kinds of information from them over the wire during the consultation? You can certainly do it in a remote ongoing monitoring setting like the RPA virtuals, but when you do that, that's almost like the old hospital in the home model, virtual hospital model, and people are effectively under the governance of a hospital service during that care episode. It's a different thing to what's usually just the consultation. 
Um, and so I think there's interesting opportunities in what's more like a consultation model. So people can have uh, much more in-depth consultations that get closer to physical reality that they're used to than they currently have with video and voice. All right, Chris, dream scenario. Design yes. for us your utopian vision of a healthcare uh, system and a healthcare service delivery. What does it look like? How can we make it better and, and really work the way we'd all want our health service to work? Yeah, so look, uh, just some simple things, I suppose, high-level features of it. One thing, and we, we actually did some work about this recently, this idea of seamlessness. So it seems very clear that the system hasn't, certainly in Australia, and there's some evidence from overseas, has not transitioned seamlessly from a face-to-face -face delivery to a telehealth delivery model. There's evidence coming up in those scenarios around particular clinical things we mentioned. Uh, there's the fact that people are reverting to phone calls. They're not actually using even the current technology to its full, full extent. So that idea of, you know, the next pandemic comes, you flick a switch and really many things don't change because you're already doing a lot of uh, enhanced telehealth consultations and really, you know, the people who needed to come to hospital still do, but mm. the people who didn't, you know, you're already doing vast chunks of that by remote care, virtual care, telehealth, and so it's not such a, a break in the care routine, if you like. But that's one way that that vision would be. We'd know we had that vision. Um, I, I think too, you know, going with that is that it's embedded in what people do it's no longer seen as a sort of break glass in case of emergency thing we just do it because it made sense and we have little examples of that there but just not right across the system you know i know cardiologists in in a hospital i work with have been basically in their clinic setting already for a long time you know they, they might have 20 patients to see in the clinic and the first one's a, a patient physically in the waiting room they call them in, they see them, they do all their work, the patient leaves. The next one's a virtual patient. They're waiting mm. in a virtual waiting room. And so they they just click through into the waiting room, the patient's there, they have the consultation, they do the, what they need to do, document and so forth. The next one's a physical patient. So that kind of seamlessness would be a marker that we've got this sort of utopian uh, state. We'd hope that it's critical, in fact, to have that utopian vision come to life, that the care standard doesn't drop. You know, we need to show that we're still doing the right things by patients in that state. As I said at the start, I don't know if you've heard, but we are in the middle of a pandemic and it has had a bit of a change on how we do healthcare. Yes. What other changes do you think uh, we'll see going forward or which ones do you think we'll stick to now that there has been this significant disruption due to coronavirus mm. in the, um, you know, in our, in our healthcare system? So I definitely think the one we want to stick to, to the extent we can show it's been safe and worthwhile, is more remote care, more telehealth. I think it would be a very bad thing and a huge lost opportunity uh, to go back to that sort of 10 kilometres per hour trundling pace we had before, um, especially if we can show it remains safe and it's cost effective. We, we can't, we know even before the pandemic, we can't keep doing healthcare the same way. So Western countries en masse have acknowledged this. We can't just keep adding more and more people into the equation mm. and um, more technology at the edges. We have to rethink how we do it or else we cannot keep up with the load. 
It's just a simple fact. And even in trying, we will chew more and more and more money in doing it. I'm not saying, obviously, we shouldn't spend money on healthcare, but we shouldn't throw it away either because it's also a scarce resource. So that's what I'm hoping stays. I'd be worried if it doesn't once we've got the evidence to hand. I'd like to think too, though, that um, that's a springboard for all sorts of other things. So some of the sort of concepts I introduced before about or what else can we now do over the wire now that we're basically using a VC connection to do more care. I think too, you know, having got people more used to that and also because in parallel, separate of the pandemic, in Australia, in our hospitals in particular, we're finally putting in more and more electronic medical record systems. Now, they're not without their problems, but what they do mean is you increasingly get more and more of the data about patient care in a true electronic form. That opens the, the door to much more intelligent computational analysis to support care. And so hopefully, you know, if you like, we'll have um, risen the tide and floated all the boats at the same time and we can start having a different conversation about and a better conversation about technology supporting healthcare, but all the while making sure we're keeping it safe. I wonder how much of the work of things like digital health has been in trying to convince doctors and patients that it's an okay way to go. You know, I imagine myself as a patient or as a doctor and it does feel like so much beyond just the physical needing to be examined. So much of the interaction between doctor and patient is the doctor Mm -hmm. picking up on those very subtle nonverbal cues, the way a person might move or if they look uncomfortable or or anything Mm -hmm. like that. Was it hard to convince people to get on board with this approach when it is so radically different to what we are used to doing, which is two people being in a room together. Yeah, look, I think in the case of telehealth in the pandemic, it wasn't hard and and the usual rationale and forces at play in that conversation sort of went out the window because of what was forced upon us in the pandemic. But that that challenge is always there. It's there in every industry when you talk about more technology in an industry. Um, it remains. Um, it will be there afterwards. And, you know, as long as healthcare science and IT science and so forth keep pushing the boundaries, we'll still be having that conversation. And we should. But I think um, some people, you know, leak to places where the computer takes over and you don't see the doctor anymore and all of this kind of thing, which I don't think is a a helpful conversation. Mm. I think if we focus on what's best for the patient and we do the same by the patient in terms of the standard and quality um, with more computational support because it helps in some other way, it might save money or whatever it may be, but, but I think, you know, those of us who work in, in the intersection and have also been doctors ourselves would like to think for all kinds of health practitioners, some of the point of this is actually making their lives easier. It's doing things that the computer is good at while freeing them up to spend more time having that human conversation and showing empathy because they're not running around looking for a test result that should be smack bang in front of them as soon as they want it because that's still our reality a lot of times in Australia. So I, I think as long as we, you know, involve the right people who are the healthcare professionals 
people like myself who can sort of see both sides of that coin and very critically the community and patients that, you know, we can find the best of this situation and not leak to these dystopian outcomes in our minds and and let that block us moving forward because I think that's not a good outcome either. Absolutely. And look, I think if there's one area we'd all like to see telehealth, it's in the COVID test. None of us want to have that swab stuck up our brains ever again. So if we could do that via the computer, perhaps that could be your next task, Chris. (laughs) You'd get a Nobel Prize. Chris, this has been so fascinating and you are absolutely right about us needing to look to the future with an open-mindedness and not a fear. Um, And I think that will benefit all of us. Thank you so much for your time. No worries, Susan. My pleasure. Let's hear from Cathy Reid. Hi, my name is Cathy Reid. I'm the co-founder of Australia's Epic Pharmacy Group and also co-founder of Icon Group, which includes Icon Cancer Centres and Slate Health Chemotherapy Compounding. Um, and with it, I've had a long interest and passion, I guess, for the role that digital health and digital technology can play in the delivery of health services. Kathy Reid, thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Um, always interesting to chat and particularly at these times. Right. Well, you know, we're in a time where um, sort of going to healthcare delivery via technology has really accelerated um, because of COVID. This is an area that you've been working in for quite some time. What do you think is possible now that might not have been before? Look, for me, I think the single biggest change that we've seen has been the education and upskilling of both consumers and healthcare professionals in interacting digitally. When you think about the average age of people of consumers in the healthcare system, and particularly, I guess, the, the frequent flyers, the ones who use the majority of the healthcare services, it tends to be that population that's over 65. And typically they haven't actually been the ones who've been using video calls and using a lot of a lot of the apps and the connected devices that a lot of younger people tend to use now almost as second nature and i think we the the really big impact that the pandemic has had on that kind of upskilling because it's been the only way that those people have been able to have interaction with their children with their grandchildren with their friends while we've all been in this sort of social restriction and isolation it's meant that they actually all of a sudden have got very good and very familiar with using tools that they previously would never have used and the same goes for doctors as well because a lot of doctors aren't great with with digital technology, but they've had, it's forced everybody to, to acquire those skills quite quickly. And I think that's been a really significant, um, almost, it's removed one of the major blocks that in, the, in the uptake of, of digital health and technology. Do you think these changes would have happened as fast if we hadn't had the pandemic to sort of push us in that direction? No, because particularly in the healthcare space, the things that we've been using, they're not new things. They're things, it's not like all of a sudden we've invented these new mechanisms for enabling healthcare professionals to be able to 
do calls with patients mm. or to receive access to results or to have the patients use connected devices that allows the transmission of, and the results through to their healthcare professionals. Nothing new has actually been invented during the course of the pandemic. It's just mm. been the uptake of tools that have existed for years that you know, those of us who've been working in this space have really, really battled for years and years and years to actually get enabled and to be able to happen. So I think it's, yeah, we, it, the pandemic has driven the shift, but it hasn't actually created the products or the platforms that we're using. It's just enabled their utilisation. Apart from, you know, the obvious things like telehealth, is there any other digital or new approach to delivering healthcare that's uh, that's become more popular during the pandemic that you're particularly excited about? Look, I think it's it's really been able to illustrate how effective monitoring people in their homes can actually be and that some of those, even, even those readily available kind of off-the-shelf products can actually do a really nice job of being able to alert when an intervention is required and it's possibly given the ability for earlier detection in some instances. You know, if, if you've actually got someone, and even just using the example of diabetes management, if you've got someone who's actually having their diabetes managed and historically it's always been, you know, they've had a standard fortnightly appointment essentially with their doctor where they go in and they have a chat about how things are going and what's their blood sugar looked like for the last couple of weeks and they take out their logbook or they maybe show them if they're recording it on an app what that actually looks like. That's that's all very reactive to what's happened in the past, whereas being able to actually because you can't, because there's been a, a reduced ability to hospitalise people or to have people come in and, and access that care face to face, it's really illustrated just how easy it is, and in some cases, much more effective, to be able to have that link set up where you've got the alert levels set, and once that alert is reached, you know, and an intervention happens, which might be, you know, a, a Zoom call or a FaceTime call or whatever else to the patient to say, hey, we've just seen, you know, your levels are trending, your sugar levels are trending up. What's going on? How are you mm. feeling? What's actually going on? Let's get that into place. So I think it allows for much more proactive management. So I, I think mm. there's been a lot of really nice illustrations around on, on those sort of applications as well as just the actual use of video calls. suddenly made the boss of well health <laughs> what kind of utopian vision of healthcare or health service delivery would you like to create for everyone what would it look, look like I think it, I think a it, it's it's neither fully digital or neither fully physical it's a it's a blend of those that physical and digital interactions where you use tech in a smart way like like we were just talking about to monitor and to alert when interventions are required and then trigger that intervention really quickly and needed using the technology but as, again maintaining though that regular face-to-face -face interactions to to assess the I guess those 
signs that, that tech does tend to dull out. I mean, now we're all experts in video calls, not just for healthcare, but for everything. And I think certainly one of the things that's become really apparent, initially everyone's like, oh, how good is this? You know, there's no difference in meeting face-to-face -to, -face to meeting over Zoom. But then after doing it for a couple of months, you go, you know what? It, it, it actually isn't the same. It's a very good alternative, but it's not the same. You don't get the same nuances that you can pick up in a face-to-face -face meeting on a video call. So I think it's where it is. The, the ideal is that blend of the physical and digital and marrying the two together. Mm. What changes do you think we'll see going forward? Now that we've had such a, a big change due to coronavirus, how do you think we will see health delivery um, alter in the future? Well, I think it's it's hard to it's hard to be fully positive about it because I think we're already seeing this sort of rapid retreat in some in some instances to return to the ways of the past. And you know, human nature, we it, we're hardwired to resist change whenever we possibly can. And we're actually already seeing this in healthcare that now now that we have got the restrictions easing in in many parts of the country and and indeed in many parts of the world that haven't been that haven't blocked people from having you know to go back to that traditional physically go to a doctor's physically go to a hospital to to get their service we're actually seeing you know some of the those measures that were put in place to facilitate change actually being wound, wound back quite quickly and telehealth is a, is a classic example of that you know we're already back to a scenario where you can only have telehealth a telehealth consult with a practice a, a medical practice that you're already registered to that you've been a face you've had a face-to-face -face consult with a doctor mm. in the last 12 months so i think unfortunately the changes that we're seeing going forward are not always going to be positive because they're going to, they are in some instances a bit of a clamber back to return to the way things were rather than what would possibly be more ideal in what have been the positives out of this and how we can create this new blended model moving forward. Is there a way you think we can better encourage patients and health practitioners to embrace some of the changes? You know, they've, they've had a bit of a try of it. You know, in some parts of Australia, they've, they're in lockdown for the second time. So patients and health practitioners are having to at least test these out for a few weeks. What, we, yeah. what could we do to try to encourage them to, to keep it on board as just part of the suite of health delivery services that they use? Look, I I think for many patients, they will they will demand it, and and mm. you know a lot of the it's like anything, much more change is consumer driven than industry driven. You know, it's it tends to be once the consumers have a particular experience, that's the experience that they expect going forward. If it's better for them, if they see positives and they see benefits in it, then they will they will demand that going forward. And I think that's where we are going to see the shift come from because you know the. For everybody doing their job, oftentimes it's easier to do your job in the way that you've always done it and without having to make significant changes. And and I think one of the things that's been illustrative in healthcare as well, that you're just some of the very basic infrastructure that exists in healthcare has has led to real challenges for healthcare practitioners in being able to deliver services remotely. For example, you know, the, the very fact that so much medical software is still on premise, not in the cloud. 
it's mm. it, it's actually meant that for a lot of doctors in particular you know they've had to still be, to do telehealth they've hadn't they've still had to go into their surgery and work from their surgery because mm. that's where all of their records are and they don't have their patient files whereas if they if um if those systems had moved you know, for and for people many people working in other areas where they you know we're all using everything's on OneDrive for example in an office based environment or Google Drive you can work from anywhere because you can access all of your files and all of your information regardless where where you are so there's some actual quite significant infrastructure barriers and even the functionality of some of the different commonly used platforms in healthcare that are going to need some significant reworking before real long-term change can be achieved. Kathy Reid, thank you so much. You've given us some really useful things to think about. Welcome. Thanks, Susan. In our next episode, we'll round up all the best practical tips from our experts about how you can embrace this healthcare revolution. As always, more information on what we talked about today can be found in the show notes and I'll see you next time on What Happens Next.